Well, good morning. Glad that you're all here. Glad that God's brought us here this morning. One of my, um, one of my favorite preachers of all time is a man named Dick Lucas. And part of the reason that he's one of my favorite preachers is because he's one of the favorite preachers of my other favorite preachers, Tim Keller. And Tim Keller credits uh, learning how to preach by listening to, to Dick Lucas's evening addresses, where he was mostly speaking and addressing non-Christians. And there's a place where, where Dick Lucas talks about how to read the Bible, and, and one of the principles that he has is, is this, he's not talking to you, silly, which is simply a corrective lesson against our tendency to to read the Bible in a completely sort of existential way. So he, he says, hey, he's not talking to you, silly. He actually says a different word besides silly, but I didn't have the guts to say it up here. That's why saying silly sounds kind of silly right now. But it's an argument against simply flipping through the Bible and, and applying whatever you read immediately and directly to your life. So, for example, um, Numbers twenty four nineteen says, destroy the survivors of the city. Okay, don't read that in your devotions this morning and, and go on, a, on some kind of assault. Uh, song of Psalms 1-2 says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I'm not going to read that for my devotions this morning and go plant one on Dan Garfield or something. <laughs> Titus 1-5 says, appoint elders in every town. I don't think that's a, a, a broad application for every Christian to do for all time. And and the point is, is that this morning's text is somewhat like these examples because we come to another place in the, in the literary development of the Gospel of Matthew. And just by way of simple recap, I've said this several weeks in a row, but Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus teaching us. It's Jesus, it's his, he's recapitulating the law for us, and he shows himself to be the great teacher, the authoritative one. And then in Matthew chapter 8 and 9... He, he shows us to be the one that's the Lord over heaven and earth. He's Lord over creation. And we see 10 different miracles in Matthew chapter 8 and through 9. But now we, we come to a place in Matthew chapter 10 where, where we're sort of turning the page. And he's shown himself to be the great teacher. He's shown himself to, to be the, the great miracle worker. And now he gives marching orders to his disciples. He gives marching orders to his disciples. But because the tent of the Gospels isn't simply to give us some kind of history lesson on what the disciples were told to do, we, we can, by the grace of God, draw out principles and applications for us in this text this morning. So let me, before I read it to us, I'm just going to just teach through a couple preliminary verses, and then I'll read to us the remainder of the text. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And the actual preaching text for this morning is to be Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 5. So I'm just going to teach just a couple verses before we, we read the whole thing. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read this summary, um, this summary of, of, of the previous section. It's the summary of, of Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And here's the summary in one verse. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So if what he's been doing is he's shown us to be the great teacher and he's shown us to be the great healer, now what he's done is he's gone about through towns and villages and neighborhoods and cities and he's preached the gospel of the kingdom and he's healed the sick. 
That's a summary. That's the summary of, of his ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. And then verse 36, 936, shows us the impulse of his actions, the impulse, the motivation. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We talked about this in December at our Advent series. We talked about the emotional life of Jesus, but the emotion that's most attributed to Jesus most often in the Gospels is compassion. And in fact, it's only attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. He's the one who has compassion. It characterizes the nature and the impulse of his acts to experience great affection for people as he, as he saw them. It's, it's, it's quite literally the word for compassion is to experience something in your most inward parts. That you, you experience your, 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 the, the seat and center of, of love is, is going out towards someone else. It's mentioned for the motivating reasons for doing several things that Jesus does. In Matthew 18, it's, it's the motivation for forgiveness. In, in, in Matthew 14, it's the motivation to help the sick. In Mark chapter 8, it's the motivation to feed the hungry. That in his innermost parts, he feels and his heart goes out to people. He's a compassionate Savior. And then as we're continuing, before we read the text here, verses 37 and 38 say what he's longing for, what he's longing for in, in, this, in this mission as his ministry is going forward. He said, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He's saying, he's saying that the kind of work that he's been doing, the kind of work that Jesus has been doing in preaching and proclaiming and healing, he says he needs his disciples to be raised up to join him in this work. He's, he's saying quite simply that this work of word and power will go on through his disciples. This work of word and power will go on through the church. And, and, and Jesus is not without solutions to the problems that he sees. Jesus does not save a problem like there needs to be workers for the harvest raised up and say, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Because the very next verse, the very next verse, he makes the solution. He, he creates solution. He is, the, he is the Lord of solutions. And the answer to his prayer is in the very next verse, verse uh, 1 of chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then verse 2, it says, and the names of the 12 apostles are. Did you catch that? In verse 1, he says that he calls the 12 disciples to himself. And then in verse 2, he says the names of the apostles are. He calls them apostles. It's the only place in Matthew's gospel that he uses that term. And apostle, it simply means sent. It simply means one who has been sent, one who has a mission, someone with marching orders. And these 12 apostles now are given authority by Jesus to carry out this work. They're given authority to carry out the work of word and power. 
They are the first workers of the harvest that Jesus has called by name and he has sent into the world. And we would be remiss, before reading the text, we would be remiss to, to not just marvel for just a moment at the list of these 12 guys. It's truly remarkable. Matthew's list teaches us that Jesus' church is comprised of very different kinds of people. It teaches us that the mission of the church to make disciples is accomplished through the very unique giftedness in the church. You remember the sermon last week where we talked about the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, the, the co-conspirator, the, the collaborator with the Romans, right? The most despicable of men, and he's transformed now into one of the church's pioneer evangelists. It's remarkable. It's truly amazing, this list of men that are in here. The words in verse 3, calling him Matthew the tax collector, teach us that the mission is accomplished by sinners saved by grace. The mission is accomplished by sinners saved by grace, not by saints without problems. The mission is accomplished by sinners saved by grace. It is accomplished by debtors, not creditors, by people, not angels. Psalm 25, verse 8, tells us he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Think of the giftedness, the unique giftedness, the unique backgrounds that are represented in just this room alone. Because there is such a temptation, I have such a temptation, to raise the importance of our own giftedness above another's. There is such the temptation to raise our own perspective over another's perspective. There is such a temptation to view others as less significant and important as ourselves. But this list that Matthew gives us is a word of grace, it's a word of balm, it's a word of rebuke to us. That the church is made up of very unique people and Jesus accomplishes his mission of word and power through this motley crew of disciples. Very different people, all sinners in their own right and all saved by his sovereign grace. And then what we're going to elucidate further this morning is essentially what Jesus does is he gives them an ordination sermon. That's essentially what he, what he does. He, 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 he gives them instructions, he gives them warnings, and he gives them and he gives them power to do it. And that's how we're going to unpack the text this morning. It naturally breaks down for us in verses 5 through 15, which are instructions. Verses 16 to 23, which are warnings. And verses 24 and 25, which is the power. So children, young people, if you're writing down the points to the sermon this morning, I'll tell you them one more time. Point one is instructions. Point two is power. That's not true. Point two is warnings. Someone said it. Thank you for doing that. And point three is power. Instructions, warnings, power. Okay, let me read the text to us. (laughs) Starting at uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. 
but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whenever, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this, this word of grace to us and these instructions. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and illuminate the text to us that we would be found faithful in this generation. And we pray that our eyes and our hearts would be enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, point one is instructions. Uh, one, of the, one of the best ways to understand the, this passage is, 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 I said, an ordination sermon of sorts, or, or it's even been called by some commentators uh, like a discipleship manual, a discipleship manual. And, and commentators would suggest to us uh, that because of the length of Matthew, Matthew's depiction here, it's, it's much larger than what we see in, in Mark or much larger what we see in Luke, so it's, it's, it's considered to be sort of the marching orders, the marching orders for the, the disciples and the apostles. So it's, it's best to be viewed in terms of uh, how to think about, about doing mission for Jesus when you get to a new neighborhood, because he's telling them to go into towns and cities and villages, and he's telling them how to do ministry when they get to those kinds of places. And it seems appropriate to us by God's providence that we come to this text as we, many of us, find ourselves in a new neighborhood in this facility. So let's, let's see what, what kind of instructions Jesus has for us. Let's remember, as I recapped for us a moment ago in 9 
35, that Jesus has, himself has been, has been going through the villages. And, and it says in verse 935, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And now, their very first instructions are given to us in verses 7 and 8. And they say this, And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse out lepers, cast out demons you've received without paying, give without pay. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that Jesus himself was doing, was preaching and healing, teaching and helping. And now he's calling his disciples to do the same thing as well. And look, it's, it's remarkable for us what, what the text calls people. When Jesus looks out into the crowds, he has compassion, as we've already looked at, but he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He calls people sheep, and Jesus calls people sheep a lot. And he calls people sheep because sheep are, they're, they're, they're foolish. <laughs> sheep oftentimes, uh, their problems are oftentimes self-inflicted problems. Sheep don't oftentimes know where they're going. Sheep are dirty, etc., etc. And he uses the term sheep to oftentimes speak of the entire human race. But when Jesus sees those kinds of things, when Jesus sees people that have self-inflicted problems, when Jesus sees people that don't know where they're going, when Jesus sees people like this, he has compassion on them. His heart is moved and his heart is stirred towards these people. He teaches them, he tells them the truth, and he heals. He, he, he works with their practical needs, and that's exactly what he tells his disciples to do. Now, you, you may be thinking, when, when you read a text like this, that, as I said in the beginning, he's not talking to you. This is, this is, is this only for the 12? What does this have to do with us in this church today? Well, the... The, um, the cross reference, the cross text that's given to us is in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, uh, it says that Jesus sends out the 72. And commentators almost universally suggest that if you, what, what, what Jesus is doing there is he's, is he's sending out all of us. He's sending out all of his disciples. And that's what's meant by the number that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 10. So I think it's a fair inference for us to suggest that what Jesus is giving for us here is for all of his disciples. In this passage, when we think about the instructions under this first heading here, the instructions that Jesus is giving us, there's, there's one overarching principle that Jesus is giving to us. There's one overarching principle that the followers of Jesus are called to, and that is simply this. It's this overarching principle that we are to be wise and gentle. We're to be wise and gentle. And he'll give it to us more specifically down in verse 16. And I'll explain it more when we get there. But he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I would suggest to us that this entire passage here is dictated by this principle. That on the one hand, the command of Jesus to his disciples is fairly simple. Go and make disciples, we're given in Matthew chapter 28. Here it's teach and heal. But then throughout the passage here, he gives us these caveats. He gives us these nuancing instructions. 
Because on the one hand, the commands of Jesus are, are fairly straightforward and simple to us. But on the other hand, they require disciples to grow into being incredibly discerning people. Requires at times. The charge is simple to make disciples. But the, but the execution at times requires tremendous prudence. He tells us to be wise as a snake. Wisdom. Wisdom is, the com- is competency for the complex realities of life. Wisdom looks into the difficult situations of life, the gray areas of life, and, and, and discerns and has prudence in terms of what to do. The command is fairly simple. Go and make disciples. Teach and heal. But the execution Jesus is suggesting to us requires tremendous prudence. Let me show us a few examples. First, the one that's most obvious, he says, proclaim and heal. Proclaim and heal. That means that the ministry, first on the one hand, the ministry of the church and the ministry of disciples is to be totally, completely honest about the truth. To preach what is true, right, and faithful. Completely honest about the fact that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And this isn't just some kind of cute phrase to describe the foolishness of the human condition. Rather, it's a statement of divine judgment. It's a statement that we all have turned away from the living God. It's a statement that says we've shaken our fist at the one who created us and made us. To be a church and to be disciples that are faithful to preaching the truth means to be faithful to preach that there is a righteous judgment of God upon the entire human race. And that is not a friendly message to a post-Christian culture that we live in. But there is hope. There is hope because God in his infinite kindness and mercy has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born among us, to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve to die. And then rise victoriously three days later, conquering sin, death, and the devil, showing his power over his enemies. And that all that repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in him will be saved. And that's what a church preaches when they're faithful to preach the truth. To be faithful to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So we're called to be brutally honest in that regard. But we're, we're also called to heal. We're called to help. We're called to meet physical needs. We realize that people are both body and soul. The Christian worldview recognizes that we, God has created the world and that we're going to last forever. God is going to take our bodies, they're going to be resurrected, they're going to be perfected, they're going to be renewed, and we will dwell in perfected bodies with God forever. And if that's true, if that's true, it means that we must care about physical, practical needs now. So we must be brutally honest about the truth and preach the gospel in its fullness, That there is a righteous God who's angry at sin, who's provided hope and redemption through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to be radically merciful to people in their practical needs. Meet the needs, feed the poor, help those who are in need. 
And aren't most churches good at just one or the other? They're either good at word, it seems like, or they're good at deed. They're either good at word or they're good at power. They're either good at teaching or they're good at help. We can either be bold in truth or we can be bold with compassion and meeting physical needs. But, my friends, the true gospel church is both. The true gospel church is both. It should offend the hyper-conservative and it should offend the hyper-liberal. So the question is, how much truth, how much practical needs? It's a simple task, but it requires tremendous wisdom. It requires insight. It requires prudence. It requires thoughtfulness to learn how to be a church like this, to learn how to be a disciple like this, to learn how to be a family like this, to learn how to be a Christian like this. When do we speak? When do we help? When do we preach the gospel? When do we just come alongside and befriend? There aren't simple answers to these things. The command is simple to us that we're to teach and we're to heal. We're to teach and we're to help. But we must become wise as serpents. We must become a wise people. He even goes down in verse 14. And he says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. Jesus is even going further and saying that there is a discriminant nature to the way that ministry is done. There's a discriminant nature to the way that ministry is done. You realize what this act means here? So it's, 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 remember, this section of teaching, Jesus is telling his disciples to go into Jewish territory, okay? They're not in Gentile lands yet. So he's in Jewish territory, and he's telling them to shake the dust off their feet. That's what Pharisees do when they cleanse themselves from Gentiles. In the rabbinic codes, it would say that when a, when a, when a, when a, when a Pharisee left the, the presence of a Gentile, they would literally shake the dust off themselves as a, as a, as a symbolic ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus is telling the disciples to do that to Jewish people. He's saying, if they will not receive Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one from God, then, then have nothing to do with them. Shake their filth off you and go to the next. Yeah. It means that there's strategy in ministry. Even there's strategy in this text here. He says, first, Gen- first Israel, then Gentiles. Look at, look at Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry, there's strategy in it. Yes, he preached to all. He certainly preached to all, but he targeted the God-fearers. Paul targeted the God-fearers. The God-fearers were those that were Gentile converts to Judaism. And that, that's, look at Paul's converts. Look at Cornelius. Look at, look, go look at the book of Acts and look at those that Paul is targeting because they're, 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 they're bridges. There's a strategy to it. Jesus is even telling them here in, in, in our text this morning of strategy. He says, if there's a house that's worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Go to the next town. Go to the next house. My point is simply, my point is simply that we must find the balance between the simple commands that Jesus is giving us and prudence and strategy and wisdom and discernment. And that's, what we're, is, that's what's ahead of us now as a local church. That's what's in front of us now as a local church. As we consider, we've been in this building now for two weeks. And we need to be wise as serpents as we consider what ministry looks like moving forward. There needs to be strategy to what we're doing. 
And as a church, we need to be praying for God's wisdom. We need to be praying for vision in terms of what's next. All of us praying for the elders, that the elders would have vision together as we consider and we strategize into how to best reach this neighborhood and these people and this part of the city for Jesus. There's 300 new families moving into these condos in the next several months here. 300 new families. And they all think they're moving to Portland or they're moving to the new hip, gentrified Lentz area for reasons that they don't even know. They think they're moving because it's the new cool area of town, but God in his perfect providence and sovereignty is calling some of them to be Christians. And he's going to use this church to accomplish it. He's going to use the relationships here to accomplish it, and we need to be wise with word and deed, as the Lord Jesus himself was. So that was the first place that required, this is still instructions, this is a long first point. It's a, it's, it's a pyramid sermon. It's an upside-down triangle sermon. Don't worry, the last point's going to be like three minutes. <laughs> so that's one contrast. Here's another area that Jesus tells us desires, um, requires rather uh, prudence and wisdom. Look at cha- verse, verse 9. This is such a cool pulpit, but what? <laughs> Sacrifice it on the altar. Thank you. Verse 9. Jesus says, Acquire no gold or silver, or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. What does this mean? Essentially, it says don't take gold, don't take silver, don't take copper, don't take tunics, don't take sandals. What could this possibly mean? Well, it's, it's, it's simply based, it's an application of the principle that he's laid out for us in the previous verse. In the previous ber- verse, he said, you receive without paying, give without pay. You receive the gospel. You receive the gospel not by paying for it. It was freely given to you. So go give the gospel freely. Don't charge for the gospel. It means that preaching and healing oftentimes come with the temptation to be commercial ventures, and we see, this, we, we see this in a hyperbolic way, right, when we see televangelists, right? We, we, we see, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he just got a brand new, like, Gulfstream 500-something jet, and he was praising Jesus for his brand new jet. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's wicked. He apparently hasn't read Matthew chapter 10, verse 9. There's a story, obviously, of, of Simon Magnus in, in Acts chapter 8, who thought that he could use the Holy Spirit for financial gain. But the text balances it for us because he says at the end of, of, this, of verse 10, he says, but the laborer deserves his food. He says, don't, don't acquire gold, but a laborer is due his food. So the, the principle is pretty simple. You shouldn't get rich off the ministry, but it's right for a laborer in the gospel to receive reasonable pay. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, don't go into the ministry to, to, to make the big bucks. Trust me, there's no big bucks, okay? But pay those that are, are, are working among you a reasonable, a reasonable wage. It's a simple principle. So by way of application, by way of application, we've, we've, we've said the number of chairs that are in this building are fixed, okay? We ordered 400. We were only able to squeeze in 357, Okay, so that's it. So when the chairs 
are, 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 are taken in this facility, we're not going to go to two services. I could not possibly imagine doing this twice, okay? We're not going to two services. We're going to plant another church. And when we plant another church, it's going to require money. It's going to require funding. It's going to require us to, to reach into our pockets and to, and to support a work of the gospel to go out and to reach more people who are doing word and deed and making disciples in the name of Jesus. I think there's another principle here that Jesus is warning us about. and He's, 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 he's calling us to wisdom. He's calling us to prudence. Is he saying anytime pay is involved, things change. He's warning us. Anytime one's livelihood is on the line, their judgment is potentially clouded. Or to put it this way, as I was thinking through this, if one's livelihood wasn't on the line, would we do something different? If, if, if money wasn't on the line, would, we, would, would, would I make a decision that was different? It's, it's one of a, a very practical, prudent reasons why a church should have more non-paid elders than paid elders. And this church does. This church has more non-paid elders than it does paid elders. Because there's a principle here that requires prudence. There's a principle here that requires us to apply wisdom to it. That when money is on the line, oftentimes things change. Judgments become clouded. Last place that requires wisdom here. Before I move on to the warnings. He says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What does he mean there? What he means, quite simply, is that Sodom and Gomorrah did not have an evangelist, a disciple, an apostle coming to them, sharing with them the gospel of of Jesus Christ. But we do. And these towns did. It's an application of what Jesus says, for whom much is given, much is required. For whom much is given, much is required. Which means that after hearing one more sermon, some of you have heard thousands of sermons in your life. It means that even after hearing one more sermon, the responsibility is all the more incumbent upon us. That we have a little bit more now. That God in his grace and mercy has elucidated something a little bit clearer to us. And now we have a responsibility to act. Are we, am I, are you being faithful with the resources that we have, with the knowledge that we have, with the money that we have, with the time that we have, with the talents that we have. One of my favorite places to look at this is in Luke chapter 16, when it talks about the, uh, the dishonest manager. And the dishonest manager, it says in, in Luke chapter 8, that he's commended for his shrewdness. He's commended for his shrewdness. He's commended for his wisdom. He's commended for his prudence. He's commended for his insight. Because do you remember what the, what, what, what the shrewd manager did with his money? And this is, the, this, is, this is the command. 
Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And I think by unrighteous wealth, he just, he just means money in general. I, don't, I think he just means the fact that, that, that all of our money in our pockets is somehow tainted from the different places that it's come. It's not totally pure. And Jesus commends this person. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's the heavy command of our Lord in that text. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. His, 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 his burden is easy and his, well, no, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The command is to simply make friends, to make inroads for the sake of the gospel, to be shrewd with your time, to be shrewd with your money. We have a responsibility, is the point of verse 15. The great missiologist Harvey Kahn, who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philly for many years, just 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 commented that, that the church is the eternal community on display. The church is the eternal community on display. And he, he said that the church is like a model home of what God is building in the new heavens and the new earth. And you've ever been to a model home where you can, when, when, you, when, there's, when they're setting up a, a, a track housing community and they build one first so you can walk through it and you can see what it's like and you can put your down payment down and you can buy one of the new homes that's coming? He says the church is like that. He says the church is like a model home that shows us what God is building in the new heavens and the new earth. That we can walk around in it and we can feel the love of God. We can feel the mercy of God. We can feel the tender care of God. We can feel the presence of God even among us. And doing that requires prudence, shrewdness, and wisdom. That's the application from this text. And that's the summary that I want to give to us for point number one, the instruction. That simply, the command is simple. Preach and teach, heal, meet practical needs, make disciples. And the application in doing that, the execution of those commands requires us to become a wise people, to understand the complexities of life and ministry. That's point one. Point two, Jesus gives us warnings and he gives us some pretty dire news. He says that we need to be prepared to deal with, with the offenses that he himself has endured. And he, and he lays out, just if you walked through the text here, he lays out six different ones. He says, he says beware of men, they're going to they're deliver you to courts and they're going to they're flog you. He says you'll be dragged before governors and kings. He says brother will deliver brother over to death. He says children will rise up against their parents. He says you'll be hated. He says, you'll be persecuted in one town and you'll have to flee to the next. The point is that there's going to be pushback. There's going to be hostility in the midst of being sent out into this broken world. And he gives to us the verse that we've already been applying in the first half. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. His portrait of sheep among wolves is to remind us, my friends, that we are vulnerable. And the portrait of snakes is to teach us that we're not to be stupidly vulnerable. That's the point. The point is that opposition is going to come 
but let's not invite the unnecessary more of it. That's his point. Let's not be a community that, that gloats in being hated. You know that, you know that guy, right? That he, he, <laughs> that everyone hates him because he thinks he's so bold with the gospel, but he's actually probably not hated for Jesus' sake. He's just probably hated because he's a jerk, right? That's what Jesus is suggesting to us here. Like, be wise. Opposition's gonna come, okay? That's a, that's a no-brainer. The opposition is going to come and it's going to be intense. So in the midst of that, be wise among the wolves. You're still a sheep, okay? But the, but the, the clear-sightedness of a snake, the shrewdness, the wit, obviously not the negative aspects, not the, not the poisonous bite, but the intelligence. This practically means that disciples should not go looking for wolves and looking for trouble. Jesus does not intend us to be on unintelligent mission, because he knows as disciples we will always be sheep, which means we'll always be, we'll, we'll, we'll be meek, we'll be mild, we'll be humble, we'll be vulnerable. We can't, we, can't, we can't eschew that aspect of being a disciple, of being a sheep, of being one of Jesus' sheep. We are called to be meek, we're called to be mild, we're called to be humble, we're called even to be vulnerable. And to maintain that disposition when he says that we're innocent as doves. Because we have to maintain that kind of model home of the future that God is creating. We must always maintain this little pocket of civilization in a world that's gone completely mad. To be a city on a hill. To be a light into the darkness. And that kind of light, that kind of city, that, 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 that kind of little pocket of civilization, that kind of model home comes by us maintaining our sheep-like characteristics, those that have been humbly saved and rescued by the merciful grace of God. But it requires tremendous wisdom and insight to not overestimate the benevolence of the wolves. It's simple in its instruction, but it's complex in its practical execution. Now, I'll just say for a moment as we begin to, as we begin to come to a close here. Well, I guess I got one more point still, so it's going to be really short. I need to say a bit about why the opposition is so intense. Why is the opposition so intense? As a group of people that are going to help and heal and proclaim forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus saying you're just going to be completely hated? They're going to drag you. They're going to flog you. They're going to beat you. They're going to persecute you. It's going to tear apart families. Because the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of the gospel, it is an offense before it is a balm. It is completely in your face. If you've understood the claims of Jesus, you know that they are absolutely radical in their nature. And when you understand the commands of Jesus, you know that they are absolutely radical in their nature because he demands complete and utter allegiance. He demands, he, he, he demands total and absolute obedience. He requires complete honor from every human being. The Bible says that every single knee will one day bow at King Jesus. And that knee will either be bowed by your, by your, sovereign, by the, by your heart being sovereignly changed by grace and you love to bow, or it, you will bow because the back of your leg will be broken and you will bow before this king. 
That is radical in nature. His claims fly in the face of the culture that we live in. His claims fly in the face of the values of the city that we live in. What he says about sexuality. What he says about the nature of marriage. What he says about the value of the baby that's inside of a womb. What he says about the fact that you are not autonomous unto yourself, but you, belong, you owe everything to the God who made you and created you. I just want to say, by saying those things, addressing sexuality, addressing marriage, addressing babies and, and, and abortion and so on, that the church is a hospital for sinners. The church is a hospital for sinners. He came to save those who were weak, sick, and sore. We have people in this room who struggle with gender identity. We have people in this room who struggle with same-sex attraction. We have people in this room who have lost their babies by their own volition. And this is a safe place to experience the grace of God and the balm of Jesus Christ. And we can talk about those things, and as a church, we will talk about those things. And you can talk to your leaders about these things, and you can learn to talk to one, one another about these things. But some will hate us because of our positions on these issues. And they will flog us, and they will beat us, and they will verbally assault us, and we may end up on the front page of newspapers Because the claims of Jesus are absolutely radical. Flannery O'Connor said it best. Well, she said it in um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And if you've read it, you know the story of the misfit in, uh, in that story who is uh, he's a complete nihilist, which means he's, he's completely, doesn't, he completely is a god unto himself. Um, and he says this. He says, Jesus was the only one that ever was raised from the dead, the misfit said, and he shouldn't have done it. He's, shown, he's, shown, he's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said he did, then there's nothing for you and I to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, then there's nothing for you and I to do but enjoy the few minutes that we've got left the best way you can, by killing somebody, by burning down his house, or doing something mean to him. And as, as he said this, his voice became almost like a snarl. He's right. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then he demands absolute and perfect allegiance from you. And if he's not, if this whole thing is just a sham, then what's the point in anything is the misfit's argument. So that's the warnings. So let me give us point three, the power. Because look, the reality of verses 16 to 23 is, it's frightening. The cost of obedience is frightening, okay? The cost of discipleship is, is one that can, that can even induce some kind of fear. I've experienced it. I read those kinds of things, and I don't, I don't long to be hated by people. I don't want to be thought of to be a, a bigot by people, a misogynist by people. I don't like those kinds of thoughts. Look what Jesus 
gives to us in verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He tells us that we'll never be alone. That you'll never be alone. It's the promise that he'll give us at the closing words of the gospel, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know that place in Timothy where he talks about um, being completely deserted, being completely deserted by all of his friends. And he says this, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And before that, about his friends all deserting him, he says, may it not be charged against them. May it not be charged against them, which I take to mean that the presence and the nearness of God was so palpable and real to him in that moment that it it allowed him to have a level of, of, of grace and forbearance to his friends that deserted him. He, he, he knows what it costs to stand before people. And he doesn't even hold it against his friends. Because the realness and the presence of God was absolutely palpable and real to him. Your father will be there, Jesus says. And here's how we know that this can be true. Because when Jesus Christ was on the cross... And he was deserted by almost all of his disciples. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the feeling, the effects of cosmic desertion. He experienced loneliness that you and I will never experience. Because in that act for us, in that act of being deserted on the cross by crying out the cry of dereliction on the cross. He gives to us forgiveness, freedom, reconciliation, and his presence forever. He endured the loss of the presence so that you and I could have it forever. And we can stand now. We can stand in the midst of this of this wicked and dying generation, and we can proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And we can help the weak, and we can help the poor, and we can meet the physical needs around us, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's good news. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you, that the Lord Jesus and his presence will never leave us. Help us to be faithful in this generation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.